Hi, welcome to Lambert Park Church. Our vision is life with God for the world. Our mission is to invite everyone to follow Jesus with us through redemptive community, intentional discipleship, and everyday mission. We're so glad you're here. Stay tuned for the podcast coming right up. All right, let's pray as we shift into God's word this morning. Lord, we just bow in this moment with gratitude that the gospel tells us that today we bow our hearts before a God who is seeking us. That today we bow our hearts and we bow and we lift up our world before a God who made the world in love and loves all that he has made. And so whether we are spiritually wide awake today, hungry for all of your kingdom and glory, or we are asleep, or we just want to be downstairs for Apex. Lord, we ask that you would meet us in this time. You would awaken us to yourself, that your word today would not just be another text, a bunch of verses, but the very means of your word to us today, your ministry for your glory. Amen? All right. By the way, my name is Scott, if I haven't met you. Scott Anderson. Hey, Alan. Thanks. Um, I wanted to start this morning with a, just naming a general assumption that I have of you, of us, that if you are a Christian, at some level, you long for God to use your life for his glory. At some level. Not all the time. There's moments probably where you want other things. But there are moments where... As you bow before God, you, or you hear the story of God's work through another, you long that God would use your life for his glory in some way, for the gospel to somehow be made known through you to others. I think this is normal. It is to be expected. Because this is what Jesus is after, right? It's what he says, Matthew 4.19, come follow me and I will make fishers Make you fishers of all people. I will make you, Jesus says. As you follow me, I will make you into a vessel of my life to others. I will pull you into what I am doing for the world. This is why we're spending this fall, we've just begun into a series called Life with God for the World, because this is what the Christian life is ultimately all about. This is what following Jesus leads to, a life with God for the world. Not just religion, but a life with God for the world. And in case you don't know, this is our vision as a church. Life with God for the world. Because we are convinced this is what God is after. This is what God wants for all of us. This is what the gospel invites us into. But here's the reality, and I want to be honest about it. We need to be honest about it. So often, probably too often, It feels like a lot of what we consider the Christian life is just a religious version of getting your act together. Sorting out your mess or pulling a religious rug over the mess of your life. Which sadly for many can become a lifelong project, a perpetual endeavor to get your stuff together. Or as some would call it, to become a good Christian or a better Christian 
or become religious, though we don't typically use that term in the Christian church. But this is not the gospel we encounter in Jesus, is it? This is not the vision and invitation that Jesus offers us. No, the gospel we find in Jesus is nothing less than an invitation to have our real lives drawn into the very life of God, drawn into Jesus' death and resurrection. Again, to quote Matthew 4.19, to quote Jesus, he says, come follow me and I will make you fishers of men and women. I will draw you into what I am doing, Jesus says. I will make you a vessel of my life for the world. And before you count yourself out, because I know a few of you are, oh, maybe Scott, maybe him, maybe her, not me. Before you count yourself out, I want you to remind you that when Jesus spoke these words for the first time and again and again, when Jesus spoke these words and called women and men to himself, he was calling women and men just like us. Read the Gospels. Read the New Testament. Listen to the story of the history of the church and you will see this again and again and again. Men and women with complicated stories and messy families People with anger issues, embarrassing pasts, and even embarrassing tomorrows. Loud people, type A people, wallflowers that no one knows what type they are because they can hardly get to know them. People who couldn't be trusted to hold the purse, people who can't remember their passwords. He called everybody. He called anybody's. Men who had no filter, women who had wounds, some who were raised in the synagogue knew all the songs, knew exactly when to come in, knew where to find the verses, and people who had no religious education and had no interest in it ever. This is who Jesus called when he said, come follow me and I will make you into fishers of all people. So in case you think Jesus' gospel isn't for you, it is. Because the hope of the gospel isn't about what we bring to the equation. It is about what Jesus offers us, offers you as you are. Which actually gets at something that Jesus encountered a lot in his day as he does in ours. This whole matter of what we bring, right? What you and I bring and how this affects our sense of need for what Jesus offers or our sense of the need of another. Let's be honest, I'm sure all of us have thoughts in our minds about who needs Jesus and the gospel most. It doesn't matter whether you are a Christian or not. We all have people we can think of who in our minds obviously need Jesus, right? We say that in a way, maybe with those words, maybe with others, but we look at someone and we think, oh, they need Jesus, which also means we have other categories that we go, we don't think that. Not as much, I guess, right? And this is nothing new. Jesus encountered this Everywhere he went in his day, we see this in the gospel at every turn, when Jesus proclaimed the gospel of his kingdom, he did so into a world that had its own established ideas, largely accepted ideas about who needed God's help and who could offer it, about who was in and who was out, about who was a sinner and who was pretty good, had their stuff together who needed a God who was already rocking it. <laughs> and in truth, this whole dynamic of religion 
often being simply an accepted way of getting your act together was very much the case in Jesus' day. Jesus addressed this continually in his ministry. And thank God he does. Because without this, without discovering the true grace of the gospel for ourselves, each of us and all of us, for our hearts and our lives, no matter what we bring in the room, our life in the church and our Christian life might forever remain just a religious self-improvement project, a never-ending, exhausting endeavor to get your act together and keep it together and keep it together and keep it together and keep it together till you die. Thank God the gospel is about more than this. So if you have a Bible, I want you to open it with me to Luke chapter 15. One of the most famous stories in the Gospels, Luke 15, verse 11 and following, a parable many of us know as the parable of the prodigal son. And before any of you are tempted to shift into park mentally because you know this story, let me ask you, do you know the joy of life in the Father's embrace? Not do you know this story, but do you know your life in the joy of the Father? No matter what you bring. Because that's what this story is about. And let it be said, just like maybe the Lord's Prayer, it's a beautiful thing that so many people know the Lord's Prayer, whether or not they understand it. It is a beautiful thing that this parable is so widely known, even where it's less understood. Because as Timothy Keller, I think, beautifully has said, if the teaching of Jesus is likened to a lake, this famous parable of the prodigal son would be one of the clearest spots where we can see all the way to the bottom. And that is what we need again and again and again. Not just at the outset of our journey with Jesus, but again and again and again. To see all the way to the bottom of Jesus' gospel. To see all the way to the bottom of God's grace for you and for me. So let's just pause and pray before we read this text together, or enter into this text together. Jesus, I just, I feel like your heart, we just said it, uh, this parable is a place where we get to see all the way to the bottom, and I feel like that is your intention and heart today for many of us. Holy Spirit, living God, awaken us, give us ears to hear you where we are, that we might hear your voice today, find ourselves led home to you again today, maybe for the first time, maybe again. Open us up to you as you open up yourself to us, we ask, Lord. Amen. Well, as I said, our text begins in Luke 15, verse 11, but the context of this parable is given to us in Luke 15, verses 1 and 2, right? It says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathered around to hear Jesus, which means that not only was Jesus and his teaching attractive to the tax collectors and sinners of his day, and let's not, we're not going to dig deep into what that terminology all meant in Jesus' day. It's not a slanderous, well, no, it is in a way. I mean, it's a, it's a, 
a sense that, they're, they're, that these people are those people, those people who obviously are doing their own thing, throwing aside God's ways, and they're all bundled together, tax collectors and sinners. Jesus ministry is teaching. Whatever it is, is attractive to them and it connects for them. They are there because they have the sense that what Jesus is offering means life for them, right? And so they're coming. You see them all throughout the Gospels. Jesus is surrounded by the broken. But, verse 2, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So right here we encounter this common mindset that certain people are acceptable to God and others are not. That certain people need Jesus and not others. But what's striking, what is most upsetting to these Pharisees, the people who are standing over here thinking they've got their stuff together, God should be good to us, not to them. They've made a mess of everything for so long. What's most upsetting to these religious leaders is not simply that Jesus ministered to task collectors and sinners, but that he ate meals with them, right? As Kenneth Bailey, a New Testament scholar and authority on ancient Middle Eastern culture explains, in the East today, as in the past, a nobleman may feed any number of lesser needy persons as a sign of his generosity, but he does not eat with them. Because to eat with someone, to invite someone to your table and share a meal with them is to declare to them and to anyone watching, anyone in earshot, that this person is like family for you. They're your people, your person, wanted at your table, at home at your table. And because Jesus was considered a prophet of God, one in whom God was at work, his eating with tax collectors and sinners meant that Jesus viewed these people as welcome, invited, embraced by God himself. Yes, these people need Jesus, the Pharisees would say, but they don't deserve to be at God's table. They don't deserve God's embrace, not unless they show radical signs of repentance and reform over a long period of time and prove that they are no longer what they once were. In response to this, in response to this, Jesus tells his parables of the lost things, the lost coin, the lost sheep, the lost sons. We need to keep this in our mind as we come to this parable again today or maybe for the first time because we tend to hear the parable and assume, believe that it's primarily about Jesus' heart for the tax collector and sinner and yet, and it is, and it is, and yet... The ultimate reason, aim that Jesus told this parable was because of the Pharisees. His desire, not just to expose them, but that they would know their own lostness and need for Jesus and come home to the joy of the Father's embrace of all. So with that, let's turn now to the parable of the lost sons. Luke 15 verses 11 to 32. Jesus continued, right? It's a third parable. We're not doing the others right now, but Jesus continued. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Short, incredibly short, uh, concise statement, but there is a world there. 
Anyone that's studied this before, heard others teach on it, read books on this knows there's so much. I've read whole books on this, these 22 verses. I read a book and a half this week. Uh, whole books on this, right? There's so much here, but I'll just pull out a few things that are essential for us to note. First and foremost, we need to know that this request, this demand, really, from the Son was in the ancient agrarian Palestinian world the equivalent of saying to your father, I wish you were dead. Give me my share of everything. I don't want you. I just want your things. Kenneth Bailey, whom I referenced already, who spent his lifetime studying and teaching the New Testament in the Middle Eastern world, shares in his landmark study on this parable. For over 15 years, I'm quoting him here, for over 15 years I have been asking people of all walks of life, from Morocco to India, from Turkey to Sudan, about the implications of a son's request for his inheritance while the father is still living. The answer has almost always been emphatically the same. Has anyone ever made such a request in your village to which they say, never? Could anyone ever make such a request? Impossible. If anyone ever did, what would happen? His father would beat him, of course. Why? Because this request means he wants his father to die. I don't want you, I just want your things. I wish you were dead. Let's be clear, a son, and especially a younger son, not the firstborn, has no right to his father's inheritance until his father has died. And not only that, but because a person's livelihood and wealth was bound up in one's land, this required the father, while he's still alive, to give away his land that was intended to sustain him and others. And even more, this would require the son to go out into the village and tell others about his shameful request so he can get some money for this land that his father has given him. This is an incident, an event of profound shame for everyone. It would provoke the anger of the whole village over the shame of the son and the humiliation of the father. And no one more significantly would be expected to be roused by this than the elder brother whose responsibility it was to protect the dignity of the family, to ensure the care of the father through all of his life by guarding the relationships of the family. And yet in Jesus' parable, the father, instead of beating his son and refusing his request, liquidates his assets and gives his son a third of all he owns. And note with this the utter silence and inaction, maybe even indifference, of the elder brother. Back to the text, verse 13. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. Verse 17. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. 
I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me one of your hired servants. Let's pause there and just note two things. First of all, we can't ignore that the son's attempts, attempt to do life apart from the father that he, maybe he's plotted, dreamed of for years has just led to ruin. Whatever is entailed in wild living, we're not told, it does not last and it does not lead to the flourishing he anticipated for him or for others, but instead to financial ruin, to social isolation and debilitating shame. It's amazing how often a path we choose can lead to a place we never thought we'd be, never wanted to be. But thankfully, and this is the second observation, in the younger son's place of desolation, the son's honest despair is invaded, overtaken, maybe bit by bit, maybe in a flash, by his remembrance of the father and life in his father's house, even for the servants. Even the servant had, servants had all they needed, he remembers. And he realizes in that it doesn't have to be this way. It doesn't have to be this way. I've been reading a wonderful book by Trevor Hudson, a Methodist South African pastor and author. I commend his work to anyone. He has a new book, just came out called Seeking God. And he opens the book with a story of a friend of his, a former alcoholic who's been sober now for 15 years, who one day was called to come over and meet with a family who were finding themselves in the grip of the destruction of addiction. He drove over to meet with this family. And as he drove and arrived, inwardly he was praying, oh God, what do I say? Oh God, what do I say? Oh God, what do I say? As he sat down at the table, these words erupted in his soul, this truth, this gospel-inspired truth, this hope-filled, inspired truth poured out of him. It does not have to be this way. It doesn't have to be this way. And we're told he said it over and over and over. It doesn't have to be this way. Some of you need to hear that today. In the grace of God, this is what the younger son realized in the wreckage of his situation. Not because of what he knows of himself, but because of what he knows of the Father. Verse 20. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. It's a beautiful scene, something many of us long for. And yet there's far more here than just compassion. In truth, there is a world of shame bound up in this moment. Shame that the son would carry, right? That made him aim only to be a hired servant in his father's house. Shame that awaited him at the hands of the community who cared greatly about the honor of each family, of each father, of the whole village. Many historians have written about the custom of the kazeza. Some of us know this, this ancient custom of, of a cutting off ceremony when a son of the village 
does an act of betrayal, including when a son would lose his father's inheritance to Gentiles. How in a moment like this, when a son has committed such a shameful act, it would be the responsibility of the community to meet the son at the edge of the village with a ceremonial jar and to smash it on the ground as a physical declaration that this son has done something that has broken his relationship. He has been cut off from the fellowship of his family and the whole community. And yet, what do we hear in this parable? With all that expectation, all that which would be normal and expected in the ancient Palestinian world, what do we hear from Jesus but the, a father seeing his son on the horizon, which tells us he's watching. And he is filled with compassion when he sees his son. Not anger, not shame, not epic disappointment, but compassion. And in compassion, he runs to meet his son before anyone else can, right? Some else might have seen him. Hey, hey, he's coming. Let's go. Get the bucket, the jar. But no, the father is seen running out to the edge of the village. All this would have stunned Jesus' listeners who understood these expectations, who lived in them, including just the father running to his son, right? Because in the Palestinian world, it was shameful for an older man to run. Even Aristotle once said, great men never run in public. <laughs> but this father does as fast as he can in compassion to embrace his son and save him from the judgment of the village, shaming himself in the process, right? The father chooses to shame himself so that his son will not be shamed, but accepted as a true son again. Verse 21, the son, he gets the kisses down, the son says to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. He's rehearsed this, right? He's rehearsed this maybe for a day, maybe for days as he's walked. Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father cuts him off at that point. The father says to the servants who are gathering, quick, bring the best robe, which is the father's robe. Bring the best robe. It's a sign he's in the family again. And put it on and put a ring on his finger. A ring is a sign of trusted authority for an untrustworthy one. Give him the ring, my ring. And put sandals on his feet. It's a sign of a free man in the house, not a servant. Bring the fattened calf, not a goat, not a sheep, but enough to feed the whole village. You'd only pull this out for a wedding, for a great feast of the whole village. Kill the, bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast. Let's celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they, the village, began to celebrate. The father was putting on a feast for all the whole village came because of the father's shameless embrace of his son. Which brings us finally to verse 25 and following, the older son. 
which rather than being just the denouement after the action, is actually the true climax that Jesus has been aiming toward the whole time with all three parables, the lost coin, the lost sheep, the lost sons. Verse 25, meanwhile, meanwhile, the older son was in the field. He's not at the house in the celebration. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. Notice that the servant or the young man, whoever this is, names the brother as the brother. Up until this moment, he had been cut off. He would have just been named named the one who is dead, who used to be the son. But here, this feast is undeniable, has changed their hearts of the village. Your brother has come back, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. If you step back for a moment to remember what's prompted Jesus to tell these parables, these verses seem to almost recap and embody what's happening before Jesus' very eyes. The tax collectors and sinners, men and women who spent real time in the far country, are finding themselves welcomed at Jesus' table. And the Pharisees and the teachers of the law are standing outside, disturbed and upset, refusing to come in, right? Jesus is just describing exactly what's happening right in front of him. As the next verse explicitly says, verse 28, but the older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. Here again, Jesus' original hearers would have been astounded by this, both the, the son's refusal and the father's going out. The older son's actions here, refusing to come into his father's house when his father is hosting the whole community, celebrating his brother, this refusal to come in would be understood as an explicit act of humiliating his father. I'm sure every parent in this room has had a time where you've been somewhere, you're hosting friends, and your child freaks out, and you just want to say, stop it, you're embarrassing me, right? And this son knows it. He knows it. In his anger over what he has done over the years and what he thinks he has not received, he defies his father in front of everyone. Everyone can see the older son standing outside, refusing to come in. So this is so real in a shame and honor culture, which is the culture in which Jesus lived. One scholar explains a man of his time and place might have disowned his son on the spot. We're not talking about the younger son. We're talking about the older son. And yet the father here responds with compassion for his older son as he did for his younger son, going out to him and pleading with him to come in. Not shaming him, not commanding him, but inviting him to come in and join the celebration, to be reconciled to his brother and join the feast. Your brother is alive and home and with us again. How can we not celebrate? But instead we read in verse 29, but he answered his father, look, 
All these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a goat, young goat, so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. In these two verses, Jesus reveals the true lostness of the older son, who in his own way is just as alienated from the father as was his brother, right? You hear it all over these verses in everything he does and says, look, he says, look. Notice his son does not address his father in any sort of relational way or even with an honor of a title. He does not say esteemed father. He simply declares, look. Unlike his father, the son is not pleading. He is commanding. He is commanding his father. He is seeking to control his father. All these years, I have been slaving for you. I have never disobeyed your orders. Clearly, he's somewhat critiquing his brother in this moment, but in it, he's also revealing that his own heart is not that of a son, but of a slave who believes he is due his wages now. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. Do you hear that? <laughs> the father's friends is the whole community. Everyone's invited. The son wants a party without his father. His heart finds its joy somewhere else. But when this son of yours, he says, right? The servant said to him, your brother. The son says, but when this son of yours has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. Notice there's been no mention of prostitutes before this moment, which means this is slander. This is slander in the heart of a bitter son who wants his due and nothing more and who does not want his brother to receive anything. In all this, as the older son stands outside, refusing to come in, we become incredibly aware of how much, just like the younger son, the older son is truly alienated from his father. He's gone to his own far country, though he never left the perimeter of the property. He wants no part in the joy of the father. He wants the father's things but not the father, just like his brother. Though he can't see it, because unlike his brother who ran off, he stayed home. Unlike his brother who threw off all expectations to get what he wanted, he stayed home and fulfilled all expectations to get what he wanted. Not because he wanted the father, but because he simply wanted the father's things. And when he saw them being lavished on his younger brother, Instead of sharing in the joy of the father, the older son was angry and refused to come in. And then as the closing scene of the parable, we hear the response of the father. Luke 15, verses 31 and 32. He says, my son. My son, you are always with me. And everything I have is yours. Legally, it is actually. It all will be the elder son's. You are always with me and everything I have is yours, but we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. 
You are always with me, and everything I have is yours. In other words, it doesn't have to be this way for you either. It doesn't have to be this way. You can come in and join the celebration. You always are with me, and everything I have is yours. Why? Because as Henry Nouwen beautifully writes in his book, The Return of the Prodigal Son, because the father loves both sons, the father runs out to both sons. The father wants both to sit at his table and participate in his joy, even though both sons have rejected their father in their own way. And with that, the parable ends. Unresolved. With the older brother still standing outside and the father pleading with him to come in. But there's one more part to this that we often miss, and Tim Keller, in his book, The Prodigal God, does a masterful job of explaining this. Naming the fact that in both of the preceding parables, the parable of the lost coin, remember that? A woman loses a coin and, and throws, tears the house apart to find it. A shepherd loses one sheep and leaves the 99 behind to go out and seek it and bring it home. And when the, the coin is found, and when the sheep is found, brings it home and celebrates with all. Keller names the fact that in both of these preceding parables, someone goes out in search of the lost son. But in this parable, the father doesn't go after the son into the far country, though he does go out to him. And Keller makes the case that Jesus intended for us to notice this and realize that this was the job of, the true, of a true elder brother and that Jesus himself, in his life and in his sacrificial death, has become our true elder brother. Jesus has left the comfort of the Father's house and journeyed to the far country to seek and find and bring us home. And not simply to restore us to the Father's land, but to restore us to the Father, to the Father's heart, the Father's joy. In truth, Keller explains, there is no way for the younger brother to return to the family unless the older brother bore the cost himself, right? The rest of the property actually is his. There's no way for the younger brother to return to the family unless the older brother bore the cost himself. And on the cross, Jesus, our true elder brother, paid our debt in our place. There, Jesus was stripped naked of his robe and dignity so that we could be clothed with dignity and standing we don't deserve. On the cross, Jesus was treated as an outcast so that we could be brought into God's family freely by grace. There, Jesus drank the cup of eternal justice so that we might have the cup of the Father's joy. There is no other way for the Father to bring us in except at the expense of the true elder brother, Jesus. So let me close by asking you, not just who are you in the parable, or are you in the parable, because you are, so am I. <laughs> we all are. But where are you? today? And what does God's invitation mean for you? What would it look like for you to say yes to the Father's 
declaration through Jesus, it doesn't have to be this way. If you see yourself today in the younger son or daughter, where are you in the parable? Are you home plotting, running away? Days or weeks out from your moment of being done with all this, all the Father's stuff to go pursue your own path to flourishing? Or are you off in the far country doing your best to make the most of it? It's hard, but it's good, and you're sucking the marrow out of it. Or are you in wreckage, grieving what you gave up, wondering if there's a way back, hoping, maybe remembering the Father and hoping for mercy, but also anticipating shame, and it keeps you there. Or are you on your way back in some way? And if you see yourself in the elder brother or sister, where are you in the parable? Are you hard at work in the field with your head down, totally oblivious to the party happening at the house with the father? Are you walking back, hearing it, thinking, how am I missing out on another party? (laughs) Are you standing outside angry, that you have worked your buns off and the Father has never given you a goat for you to have your thing? Are you commanding the Father to give you your wages now and stop being so lavish with them? Are you standing outside but wanting to come in Where are you today? And how is this announcement of grace? It doesn't have to be this way. Doesn't have to be this way. How are those words of hope and life and grace an invitation to you today? And what would it mean for you to repent and come home? Because you can. Because Jesus has left the father's home and garden, gone to the far country to find you. He has left the home and walked out into the backyard, pleading, inviting you. He's made a way. Let's pray. Father, Father of compassion, rescuing Jesus, searching spirit, The gospel tells us that you are here with us. You dwell amongst your people. And your heart is always open to the cry of the broken, wherever we are. In your grace, God, I trust that you have been speaking this morning among us as you have been speaking to me And I just, we just want to say thank you, God, that you do not leave us where we are and that you do not see us where we are. You do not not see us. <laughs> you do see us. You understand what has led us to where we are. And you and your grace, 
come to us. Today you have come to us through your word, by your spirit, in community. Open our eyes to you. Open our eyes to ourselves. Whether we're the rebel son or the prodigal Pharisee. Open our eyes to ourselves. Open our eyes to you. May the gospel mean life for us today.